Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. For you alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. So in my freshman year at UGA, I lived in Russell Hall, right on the first floor, and I had tons of friends, uh, even from my high school, who also lived in Russell Hall. Um, One of them lived a few stories above me, Jason, and he signed up for a science class that first semester he thought would be so very interesting, astronomy. He wanted to take Astronomy 101. And if you'll remember, if you went to UGA or another college, science courses, uh, you have to sign up for them a little differently. At least then, you had to sign up for the lecture portion of the class, and then you have to sign up for the lab portion of the class. And my friend, he quickly registered. When the time came, he went to the lecture, got the syllabus, and promptly dropped the class. See, he was shocked. He was annoyed. He was confused as to why the astronomy lab would be at night, interfering with his social life. (laughs) Can you imagine why in the world the astronomy lab would be at night? Because that's the whole point. That's what it's all about. And if you sign up for it, you know what you have signed up for, well, except my friend (laughs) Jason. Um, And I bring that up because today we are going to focus on Uh, Something very, very basic and beautiful, the death of our Lord Jesus for us and for our salvation. And it's church. This is as routine and fitting as the astronomy lab being at night. That We would spend our time this morning talking about um, the salvation that Christ has brought. I mean, this is the main thing. This is what it's about. Each Sunday, we come together for worship And the gospel, the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, it runs throughout this entire service. Uh, We don't follow this liturgical service um, because it's fancy or formal or beautiful. It is those things. But the reason we follow an ordered service like this is because every week it displays the gospel like a diamond. And it shows us the death and resurrection of Jesus anew, inviting us to worship to repent, to confess our sins, and then to come and receive from the Lord at his table um, what he has for us. That's every week. And so today, this Sunday, uh, we're going to talk about the death of Jesus. One of the songs we were singing regularly is called Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Mystery, not not something unknowable or or a puzzle that can't be solved, but a mystery in, in the Christian life is something to be marvelously adored. And that's what these readings do. They hold up the death of Jesus as something that we can marvelously adore. Um, And I'll tell you, most weeks, um, I look at the three readings and I go, I'm going to pick one of those to focus on. And uh, this week, I couldn't do it. Um, So we're going to look at all three readings (laughs) this morning um, as we think about how they together show us this amazing picture and portrait of Jesus the servant. So first, Mark chapter 10, the greatness of the servant. Uh, Mark 10, uh, the whole chapter is full of the counterintuitive logic of God's kingdom. In the last few weeks, we've seen the contrast between these little children that come to Jesus and are welcomed 
and the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. The children are welcomed by Jesus. He says, to such as these, the kingdom of God believes. And in contrast, the, the rich young ruler comes. And we saw this last week. Jesus sees him and loves him and calls him and he walks away. He's too ensnared by the things of this world. And we kind of say, hey, we might not be ensnared by the same things. Maybe we are, but we're probably ensnared by something. And just like the colic we pray, Jesus wants to set us free from that. That's the call in our lives, something costly but necessary. And that entire section of Mark 10, it ends with this one-liner. This was in verse 31, right before our passage. But many who are first will be last and the last first. After that, Jesus told his disciples a third time. He's got to use repetition with these guys. Hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. And I'm going to die, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised to life. He's not vague. There's no accident. This doesn't take Jesus by surprise in any way. He says, no, the Son of Man will be delivered. They will condemn him to death. They will mock him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. So how did James and John respond to this news? Well, with callous ambition. They asked for promotions of greatness and glory. Enough of the kingdom, they want to raise. And I actually love it. It says the other ones were like, what the heck? Seriously? <laughs> they were indignant. You can imagine, when I, when I think of James and John in this moment, I imagine Michael Scott from The Office. <laughs> They're coming. They want a promotion. They want to be set above. And Jesus responds to their request for glory by redefining greatness, reminding them of his mission, going right back to what he had been talking about before they sidelined him, his upcoming death. It says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Most would actually say that verse, Mark 10, verse 45 um, that's the main verse of the entire Gospel of Mark. The entire Gospel of Mark, you can sum up, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John wanted to be great. Jesus says, okay, true greatness is found in service. And that greatness is going to be most fully on display in the Lord Jesus. And so you have these moments in the gospel, you know, first, when he washes his disciples' feet a little bit later, this moment of humble service, and that, of course, prefigures ultimately his death on the cross. Um, it, it, it actually, I didn't even make a note of this, but it occurred to me, as James and John say, we want to be on your right and your left when you come into your glory, that's a picture of the three crosses. <laughs> He's like, you don't want to be here. <laughs> that's not good. You don't even know what you're asking. The greatness of the Lord Jesus is on display in these moments. And it's all leading to the cross where he will give his life for us because of us, because of his love, because of our sin. It's the ultimate image of greatness in the kingdom of God. And in fact, when Jesus talks about being a servant, um, that word, like so often, is almost like a, like a hyperlink on the internet. You know, when you're on the internet and you see the link and you click it and it goes somewhere else, so many 
themes we see in the New Testament and Old Testament are like that. They're linked together. Um, and, and our lectionary just kind of lets us do that. It says, hey, if we want to talk about being a servant and being the servant of the Lord, well, let's go back to Isaiah. Because the prophet Isaiah has all these songs, all these prophecies about one that he calls the servant. And so I want to move from the greatness of the servant to the suffering of the servant. Because again, if you read Isaiah, especially this chunk of chapters 40 through 55, um, it's not narrative, it's tough reading. Um, it's poetry, it's prophecy, but you'll notice there's two main characters throughout. One is Israel's God, and the other is this figure called the servant of the Lord. This anointed uh, messianic figure who will suffer and die for the sins of Israel and the sins of the whole world. Isaiah 53, this is actually the fourth of those great songs. And this one is a ballad about the servant's death, how it relates to our own sinfulness. So I just want to spend a little time here. Look at verses four through six. They don't need much comment. We just need to look at them. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's a big passage of scripture. A lot going on. We see the poetry of the cross. Um, the reformers of the 16th century, they said here we see what's often called the great exchange. It's not a good deal for Jesus, this exchange, but essentially we give to the servant our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins, all of us and all that we've done. Nothing, no one is exempt according to Isaiah. And those are laid on Jesus. That's what we bring to the table. And then look at what he gives us, peace and healing, wholeness and a future. That's what he gives to us. I remember long, I mean, it seems like a long time ago now, um, when The Passion of the Christ, that film came out. Um, some of our folks will remember that. Um, it was a tough watch. And I remember um, watching that and going, on the one hand, I want to look away. I don't want to watch this. And on the other hand, going, I should watch this. Um, there, there's something to going, hey, remember what this is about. The cross. And Jesus' great love for you and for me and what he did for us and for our salvation. And it's okay to feel like you want to look away. This passage is tough. It, it's, it's brutal. There's a temptation um, to look away. We don't want to see it. We don't want to dwell on it. Um, we're probably, especially, we don't want to think about our part in it. The Lord says, see, consider, come behold the wondrous mystery. That hymn, another line says, come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. Then it invites us, see the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many Sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. We're, we're called to look. 
to see, not to turn away, but to, to behold what our sin cost and what great love our Savior had for us, that he would bear our sins to bring our peace and healing. Again, this was necessary, as Isaiah points out, and we know from our experience we've all gone astray. And the cross answers that. One early uh, theologian in the church um, got this great line. It says, alone did he, Jesus, assume the penalties of our wicked deeds. Not when we were half dead, but even when already altogether foul and stinking in tombs and graves. The Lord knows the depth of our sin, and he loves us. We don't have to be ashamed of that because we find redemption and forgiveness. We have grace unmeasured, love untold. And so this prophet, the poetry continues in Isaiah. He's just trying to wrap his words around the agony he sees ahead, the scourging, the cross, um, not just torture or execution, but all of that plus humiliation. That's why, by the way, the Romans did this. There are much more effective, efficient ways to kill somebody, but they don't send the same message. And so they wanted to execute him with a message, with humiliation. They want to say, hey, hey, don't rise up and try to do this. We're in charge. We're going to do what we like. Bishop N.T. Wright, he's got this little book called Small Faith, Great God. And he reflects on this passage. He says, on the cross, Jesus took on himself that separation from God, which all others know. He did not deserve it. He had done nothing to warrant being cut off from God, but as he identified himself totally with sinful humanity, the punishment we deserved was laid squarely on his shoulders. So that's actually why he shrank in Gethsemane from drinking the cup offered to him. It's this cup of wrath. And on the cross, Jesus drank that cup to the dregs. He drained it so that his sinful people might not drink it. He finished it, finished the bitter cup, both physically and spiritually, and that turned his last cry into a shout of triumph. It is finished. That's the word that we written on a bill when it had been paid, like a rubber stamp. Finish. Paid in full. He completed what he came to do. The debt is paid. The punishment taken, salvation accomplished. Mark 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So before we close this morning, I do want to look at Hebrews 4 just briefly. We had the greatness of the servant in Mark 10, his suffering, Isaiah 53. Hebrews 4 underscores his generosity, his generosity. Um, and again, you're getting your money's worth a little bit today. <laughs> Three passages, one sermon. We usually don't do it this way, but um, I couldn't resist. Because all these are so rich, so beautiful. Hebrews 4 is about the generous welcome of this servant. The one who, who generously gave us the ultimate gift of himself. And that generosity abounds and overflows. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So then how do we respond? How do we respond to all of this? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I mean, sin is serious business. So serious it led to the cross. 
And here we see this, the harshness towards sin balanced with the sympathy and love and tenderness God has for us. The servant is generous with salvation. He generously grants us mercy and grace to help in time of need when we draw near to him. Um, and after all, he's the one who made that possible, that we could draw near, that we could boldly approach the throne of grace. All that is out of the generosity of our Savior, the servant. Despite our sins, of which God is aware, as which Hebrews 4 clearly reminds us, we are pardoned and forgiven, and God lavishes his love and affection upon us. Not spiritual amnesia, but because of the work of Jesus for you and for me, for us and for our salvation. And so he generously invites us to draw near. Actually, every week we're invited to come and draw near and worship. That's why we don't take it for granted to come Sunday by Sunday with God's people to draw near together. There's an invitation for each one of us, both when we come to the Lord and every moment after. So I don't know what's going on in your life this morning. Maybe you're having a good weekend. Maybe it's a tough weekend. But these three amazing passages, they remind all of us how much God loves you, how much he loves me. We're reminded of the cross, reminded of the ongoing grace and mercy God provides for the ins and outs of daily life. Maybe today you need to repent. Maybe there's been a besetting sin. You feel called to turn away from it or, or maybe just called to turn away from trying to, to do life your way and control things when the Lord is there ready to help. Maybe you read this and, and maybe you say, man, I need to pray. If, if there's grace and mercy uh, and help in time of need, I, I've got something that I need help with. And I'm in need. And you can spend some time praying for that. The Lord wants to hear your prayer. He wants to answer your prayer in a way that's best for you. Maybe you hear this and you need to worship. Adoration is what's called for. Maybe this is just a fresh reminder of the cross and Jesus' love for you and for me. Honestly, we probably all need to respond in all those ways <laughs> to a degree, to repent, to pray, to worship, reminded that we don't just worship the one who died, but the one who was raised from the dead our great high priest now ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. That last line in this hymn, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, says this, Come behold the wondrous mystery slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he's alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. This is the basic of the Christian faith. The death and resurrection of Jesus that's embedded in this service. It's the centerpiece. It's why we gather. Um, and actually early in the life of the church, they, they codified this story in what we call the creed. And so that's why every week we go through the creed to remind us of this story, to draw us to this story and help us to be part of and formed by this story, first and foremost. So let's stand together. I'm going to invite you to stand and declare what we know to be true, this story in the words of the Nicene Creed. I'm asked text to come forward and lead us in the creed and then move to the next part of our service.
in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Maybe may be seated or kneel as you're able. 